Hi, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. My name is Chelsea Slotten, and I'm your host for this episode. On this episode, we are joined by Chelsea Blackmore from the University of California. Her work focuses on class and social identity formation among the ancient Maya, as well as in a historical period, as I have just been informed. Um, completing the panel are Emily Long, Kirsten Lopez, and Sarah Head. Thanks so much for joining me, everybody. Happy to be here. Happy Excellent. So I know, Chelsea, that we are going to spend this entire episode talking about you and your work. But if you could just quickly in, um, you know, a minute or so, give a brief overview of who you are so the listeners know what to expect. Okay. Uh, so like you said, I'm an assistant professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz in the Department of Anthropology. Um, I have a PhD in anthropology archaeology from UC Riverside uh, that I got back in 2008, and I have been here at Santa Cruz since 2010. Uh, Essentially, the work I like to do revolves around identity, uh, power, inequality, so I've always been very much interested in the processes of things around like class, gender, sexuality, race, uh, and anything that talks about the ways in which society and people interact with one another and how those affect how people define themselves, how they're able to define, how they choose to define, how they push back about the ways that they are defined or constrained. Or uh, and so a lot of my work has centered around prehistoric archaeology, specifically the uh, ancient Maya, the classic period Maya, uh, between uh, the periods of AD 200 to about AD 900, mm-hmm. uh, largely uh, in uh, Belize. Um, but more recently, I've also been looking at these questions about identity in the historic period, both in Colonial California, where I ran a field school at the site of Mission San Antonio de Padua, and uh, a more recent project in Southern Belize, which is the archaeology and survey of uh, legal and illicit settlement uh, in the early So period. pirates. Pirates. Do you guys have like National Pirate Day fun at the site? (laughs) Absolutely. Totally. We have have our own pirates. (laughs) It's wonderful. That sounds like such fascinating research that you're getting into. And I feel like I'm, I know for myself, when I was in college, those were a lot of topics that really weren't covered. Um, We really did stick to, you know, your basic academic format where it's just, or, traditional academic format, you know, here's processual archaeology, <laughs> Sarah theory, yay. And, and just got, we never really got into gender theory. We never really got into um, Marxist theory, any of that. We didn't really look at um, these power dynamics. So it's fascinating that you're bringing that in your work, you're bringing it to your students. Like, that's amazing. I, I love that's where archaeology is going. Yeah, I um, uh, I mean, most of my education was very similar. I, in fact, joke, or, joke around that beyond just coming out as a queer person, you know, uh, professionally and personally, I also had to come out as a sort of kind of post-processualist. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> my undergraduate. Not one of those. <laughs> yeah. when, I was, when I was an undergraduate, you know, post-processualism was still very much... Um, reviled by many processualists it still hadn't really gained ground in a lot of kind of the archaeological discipline in the US. Oh, and, and that's, that's still true in some some uh oh yeah days. same <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> I, I am in the hippie state of california you know so um, <laughs> and um so my professor at that time would joke uh offhandedly that it was the um Dowsing rods of archaeology is how she was about <laughs> oh. archaeology. So, oh man, wholeheartedly. Told me she still loved me and thought I was a good student, still smart. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Did you ever contemplate just telling her, you know, all theories bullshit? Ergo, I hate theory. I mean, like that could have been your response as opposed to. I'm a <laughs> it's true but you know i was young and you know i felt like i had to have a category to fit in now i could care less different adjectives do you have to have in order to like define the type of theoretical yeah. framework or whatever you're in? <laughs> 
like suddenly got really yeah. tense here. This, is, this is clearly an ongoing discussion that we've had on the show about various opinions oh, yeah. of theory. Um, theory. I, I love theory. And, and so on the one hand, I don't, but I also believe that you theory to me is kind of like a recipe. You throw it all together and you see what, you know, um, and you don't have to be defined by a particular oh, yeah. category. Um, I, I feel like, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I feel like we're working our way into a post-theory world, which I'm sure all of you are going to jump on me for, but I'm right. <laughs> just right. <laughs> well, my question is, what does no, that mean? What fair. is a post-theory world exactly? I just think, like, currently we have all of the theory that we are going to need for a while. I'm not saying that there's not going to be another theory at some point or another giant leap forward, and I think it's going to be tech-based. I think... Uh, other Chelsea and I had a discussion in the car when she cornered me for an hour and a half. Um, it was not that long. It's true. It's going to get longer each time I tell this story. Um, anyway. <laughs> whole damn strike. Um, it was five hours long. Yeah, no, I, I'm like, I'm at a point uh, where I'm just kind of like, and maybe it depends on where you are, because like I do primarily CRM work, and there's just not a lot of room for theory in CRM. We were tech-based. Field, oh, totally. Uh, a branch of archaeology. So, like, I I have never looked in an artifact in a Marxist way because like, <laughs> I just go pull back in after I got the artifact out. So it doesn't matter uh, until you go to do the analysis. But it's the approach, though, that CRM mm-hmm. kind of goes at. The archaeological record is strictly processual. So it's still theoretical. It has an angle oh, totally. of the reasons why... Mm-hmm you do A, B, C, and D. Um, the challenge is, is that there hasn't been a whole lot of, okay, with these other theoretical approaches, how do you then apply that to a short time and money schedule that CRM has and still produce something that can be understood by your contractors? So Well, I mean, the simple answer to that is you don't. I mean, <laughs> you don't. <laughs> So, um, <laughs> Dr. Blackmore, uh, have you found that, like, with your studies that um, gender theory, uh, post-processualism, processual plus, all of these things, are you finding it and finding yourself with your work it more and more ac- applicable in the fields that you're in and you're seeing a greater use of it? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's more pervasive. Uh, in the United States in particular, obviously it's it's very pervasive in, in Europe, um, uh, kind of broadly, uh, but I'm really broad strokes there. Um, I, I think it's more applicable, but again, as I think a couple of you pointed out, it's really based on where and what you're doing, right? So if you're doing CRM, that's very different. If you're in academia, that's very different. If you're in a, you know, an academic, you know, department that focuses on, you know, uh, artifact analysis, that's going to be very different than, say, more of a Stanford or Berkeley, which, you know, of course, does artifact analysis, but also very much focuses on these, like, you know, the big T theory, the broad social critical, you know, types of theory. Yeah. So I think it's it's very, uh, very contextually based. Mm -hmm. Uh, I still find it sometimes hard to have certain conversations in prehistory that are much easier Mm -hmm. in historic archaeology. Uh, Why would you say that? Just for the sake well, of our listeners. <laughs> yeah, um, particularly things like around intersectionality, for example, and even queer theory uh, to a certain extent. Uh, intersectionality, talking about the you know kind of uh, broad chain of oppressive structures um, that that define different people's personality. That's different people's identities, um, and and how that creates kind of structural oppression. Okay, and within prehistoric archaeology, I think those kind that kind of really messy complexity is people find hard to access because we don't have the historic records mm-hmm. we don't have people's specific narrative voices or voices that are explicit to a group of people right we don't have examples of this is how you know this group of you know african-american women felt during this period of time based on poetry based on you know comics or newspapers mm-hmm. or you know oral histories uh we have you know ethno history for good or bad but it still takes broad strokes of what's going on now and applies it to the past mm-hmm. so i think there's a bit of discomfort with that you know it, it, it's like we can talk a good game but how do you get yeah. down to the movie greetings what are the artifacts you know mm-hmm. how do you yeah. put all that together um and i still think people are struggling in in, in historic archaeology to really do that well 
Um, and so I think prehistoric archaeologists are just like, we have our tools, we have our objects, we can do these <laughs> nice, special plus, you know, kind of straightforward things, you know, but fortunately, there's tons of people who really are trying to push the boundaries in lots of different places. It's just that I think that kind of constant struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I think you're right. Um, and I'm going to tension this a little bit because you said a couple of things that I think segue um, interested uh, or segue well into an article you wrote that I'm very interested in. Where you were talking about how um, modern biases have affected our perceptions of how the ancient Maya state was structured, particularly in that there was necessarily a difference between politics in the state and kind of everyday life. And I would be very happy if you could chat about that a little bit. Uh, Sure. Um, Essentially, one of the things I've been interested in the last, I guess it's been like a decade now, I hate getting old, (laughs) Um, is, is the role of lower status peoples, women, basically those people we don't necessarily place at the center of society um, in, in ancient Mesoamerica mm-hmm. um, and what role they have kind of in the construction and production and maintenance of the state beyond just being kind of, you know, the, the, the menial workers and, you know, uh, 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 producers, essentially. Uh, and thinking kind of more structurally about what is power. I mean, this is a concept that's been part of anthropology for a long time, is what's power, who has it, uh, you know, can we see aspects of resistance, of compliance, uh, aspects of some moderation within that? Because in a lot of the ways that we approach uh, states and complexity, they tend to still be very focused from a top-down perspective that power and growth and the, the real mm-hmm. bread and butter of society is built through, by, and for the elite, the upper crust, the people who have, you know, the resources and the big personalities and the ones who can take advantage of whatever situation is ahead of them and, and bring these societies together. And we lose a lot of the nuance of, of the everyday person and the everyday activity that are essential in that process, if not more important mm-hmm. in many ways. And for me, yeah. that's a reflection of how we think about today about poverty and about poor people and about women and about those that are marginalized. Uh, I think it's very much a reflection of how we think of what the state mm-hmm. is, that it is this entity that controls and defines and structures, and it is separate, you know, uh, from everyday life. Huh. Right. Now, is there, because I know these sorts of conversations uh, happen broadly in archaeology, mm-hmm. but not just among, you know, Mayan, Mesoamerican right populations is there a particular reason why you think my population is um like a good example um of this do you think that they likely had um like less separation of of state and personhood well that's that's just it it's like any any government any any state there's going to be different levels of separation between those that are in power and those that are not. And I think you had many different levels. There was certainly a very uh, fine uh, class system. Mm-hmm. And in no way am I saying like there were some commoners who one day rose up and mm-hmm. said, I think I want to be king today and started a revolution and, you know, tore down society. There's at least no evidence of that anywhere. <laughs> um, but because you had class and gender you also have different ethnic groups, and you also have different occupations. You know, there there are lots of examples of the different ways in which one's occupation, one's gender. Okay, sorry, is that me? So, like for example, one of the things that always pops to mind is a colleague of mine worked at the site of Quen, which I believe is in Guatemala. Uh, I think it's in Guatemala. I'll have to double check that. <laughs> and. Um, uh, and in this site, she was looking at jade production, right? And jade in Mesoamerica is a very beautiful, valuable type of greenstone uh, that we see very commonly amongst the population. But the lower status peoples were the ones who seem to do most of the production of jade, which she argues that would have 
possibly given them more power to actually kind of intentionally interact and, you know, kind of define what was going on. Like. So, I mean, and, and the other part is, is to me, and I mean, people can argue with this, but sometimes I think our interpretations of the past should also be based on common sense. Do I hear a cat? <laughs> uh, yes. That, that is my roommate's cat. <laughs> my roommate has just arrived home. <laughs> Jefferson would like to Hello, make sure that everyone is aware of his presence. No, it's yes. fine. That's why I actually <laughs> muted my microphone there for a little while. because my <laughs> No, it's, it's a value add. <laughs> Everybody likes cats. <laughs> That's the cutest little like pure like purr meow. It reminds me of uh, Patterson cat from the weekend. Yes, He's very talkative. He was very talkative. However, we should go back to talking about archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe we should. Delete. You were totally not distracted by cats. Right? Just now. Maybe yes. maybe we should delete. No no no. Oh, delete yeah, that section right, right. now though. I was just saying that I guess I also look at ancient societies and I get frustrated when I see people, particularly in the ancient past, characterize it like it is some kind of sacred, holy, perfect, mysterious process. And it's like, I look around and I'm like, yeah, I mean, people conceived of the world differently, but I have a hard time believing that everybody was like, oh, the holy person on top of the human made mountain. Yeah, obviously they must be in charge, and the, you know, like I just I feel like people would call bullshit on that. Yeah, you know, I think some people would have. Oh sure. And I and I, go ahead, sorry. Oh, I think that there is definitely a trend in archaeology towards I don't understand. It must be ritual, or this seems like it would have been highly technologically advanced for the time. So whoever had it must have been the most <laughs> important person. Or oh well, all of the flakes are over on the right-hand side of the, you know, tool production area. So that must mean something significant. And, like, maybe that was, there was a tree there, and, like, that was where it was shady, and, like, you know, <laughs> Yeah, or, or there were 15 kids who were like, ooh, I like stacking yeah. all of these pretty pieces of stone that are the same color and the same. I mean, <laughs> there's so many alternate explanations mm -hmm. that we could have for this kind of stuff. And, and for me, that's where a lot of my work is, is about, critically just kind of trying to explore different options i guess mm -hmm. um, emily we're actually at um, the end of our yeah. first segment so emily if you can just hold on to that thought of um, course. We'll go to break and when we come back i can't wait to hear what question you have for dr blackmore during this break why not check out the women in archaeology blog and see the posts we've been putting up over the last two years We've been discussing many different topics from surveys that have been done in the field on what archaeologists are experiencing, all the way to just random subjects that interest us at this time. You can also see back episodes, and it's also a way you can contact us about your interest in the episode and any topics you would like us to cover. Again, thanks for listening. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast on this episode, we are joined by Dr. Chelsea Blackmore from the University of California. So far, we have been discussing some of all of our various theoretical positions, as <laughs> well as uh, Dr. Blackmore's work in with the ancient Mayan culture. But right before we left for the break, Emily, you had a question that you were about to ask, and I, of course, interrupted you to take us to break. So if you want to jump right in. Sure. Thank you. Um... I'm, I was curious. So when you're looking at these sites and you're trying to find um, the different classes of people, trying to figure out more than just, um, you know, only those in power, what what do you find in the record that indicates that? Are there particular kinds of artifacts um, or, or is it with a combination of historical documents that you're able to see it? Are there like certain features that you're looking for to be like, oh, yes, okay. So if I see this, this means there's this group of people at the site doing X, Y, and Z, which means resistance or compliance, et cetera. What are the artifacts, features, et cetera? Right. Well, to, to define class or identity in general, you know, as archaeologists, we always have to start with kind of some basic categories. Like we have to start with, you know, heuristic models, if you will, or do we think that this gender or this class of people may be identified by X or Y or Z, right? Mm -hmm. So for lower status peoples, there's a whole suite of artifacts that we use to identify them, you know, the smaller houses, um, houses that aren't, that don't have a lot of masonry, 
architecture, you know, meaning like a lot of stonework uh, that uh, are smaller in height, uh, may not have been around as long, uh, tend to have more utilitarian wares. Uh, we mm-hmm. often won't see things like uh, a lot of painting or decorative work on a lot of these households or on the walls. We typically won't find pottery associated with that have glyphs on them in these lower status households. So that's kind of like a base collection of, of materials that we can look at. But what we also realize is that that is one end of a very large spectrum. That's kind of how you start mm-hmm. going, well, what are the, what's the, the kind of perceived duality that we know we do have in some cases, you know, if we look at the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich. And then yeah. you start looking at situations in which you have combinations that are unexpected. Like, so for me to look at that complexity, I often ask myself, well, what aren't we expecting to find together? Mm-hmm. What does it mean if we find um, really nice pieces of jade in lower status context that otherwise these people are commoners, but they have, you know, finished pieces of jade or they have really fancy burials? Uh, with lots of goods in them, like what does that mean? Those those places of of uh, trying to think of the word would be where things are mixed together. It makes me think of gender, like all those times people at previous sites have said, "Oh, well, this woman is buried with all this wealth. Clearly, she must be a transvestite." Me to Arnold stuff. Um, you can do the same thing with commoners, right? It's not that clear cut, right? Did everybody understand that this was some? unusual category or was there just that much complexity does that make sense i don't know if I'm yeah it does it does yeah. where you're seeing different things it's not just there's gold therefore they were in charge it's like no there's a right. lot more to it and take right. some deeper investigating right so yeah you kind of start with categories and i think that's the main idea of of the kinds of stuff I'm interested in is is you start with the categories, but you don't take them for granted. And I think that's probably for me, one of the things I argue against in that article you brought up in the the last episode. What's the um, title of the article real quick? Let me pull it quickly. It is Ancient Ancient States and Ordinary People, a Feminist Reimagining of Ancient Maya Power and the Everyday. Thank you. That's why I had your academia page up. Yeah. <laughs> when it's published in 2016, it means that, you know, I was working on it back in 2012. Mm-hmm. So I have... It's been some time. <laughs> so does that answer your question? It does. It definitely does. Because it's like, what are... I've always wondered, like, what do you look for? It's the kind of idea. It's like, yeah, that's a cool theory or a cool interpretation, but what's the material behind it? So that that's a great answer. Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. Yeah, and some of that as well, actually, the some of the SHAs that I was at in January, there were some interesting conversations going on around what materials mm-hmm. you were finding that could be indicative of status and whether the presence of high quality goods in personal spaces was more indicative of status than high quality goods in public spaces and the presenter made a, a good point at the end that we can theorize it theorize about it as much as we want but some of it also just comes down to personal preference and personal choice like what's more important to you so that also can have an impact on what the assemblages end up looking like and also you know what we i think there's an assumption in prehistory in particular of kind of a, you know, conservative is the right word, but I think we tend <laughs> to change as a conservative process mm-hmm. to a greater degree. That kind of is our default. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. we assume people kind of preserve the same traditions and ideas and beliefs, you know, through long periods of time. And, and I definitely do think that there are connections because, uh, you know, we can see certain elements and ideas, at least in images and material preferences that seem to stretch across long millennium, but what those actually mean in the context of those particular moments and situations is really hard to assess. Like, I don't know if you've ever read um, uh, Elizabeth Brumfield's article about, uh, I wish I could remember the name, it's about ethnographic analogy, where she looks at gender uh, or assumptions of women's roles in weaving from the classic period Maya through the post-classic Aztec through modern day peoples. Mm. It shows how 
it wasn't just gender, but the actual, even though we can look and see a lot of the same images and materials and ideas, mm-hmm. the reasons around who did weaving, who participated in it, varied from gender to ethnicity to mm-hmm. class, right? So it yeah. wasn't just a woman's job. It was very much embedded in the particular circumstances of the time, the particular class structures, particular state structures, the particular choices of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's all really interesting. Um, because apparently my segue game is just like not on book today. <laughs> but you were talking about um, change in the Mayan period. And I know that you have recently changed your focus a little bit. Did you see what I did Ooh, there? Now good segue. Now. Good work. <laughs> Um, So do you want to talk a little bit about (laughs) some of the historical work that you're doing with, I'm going to just call them pirates because who doesn't like studying pirates? Sure. Uh, So I've I've actually had a long history. I started off in historical archaeology as an undergraduate and did my MA in uh, Spanish period missions in the southeastern United States. And somehow through random circumstances ended up in in ancient Mesoamerica for my PhD. So I've I've always had a love for it um, and have wanted to go back to doing uh, historical archaeology, particularly in Latin America, because it is uh, very understudied in comparison to prehistory. And I think one of the places in which I, as an archaeologist, can actually make hopefully some kind of substantial contribution to more community-driven public types of archaeology because there are a lot of people in Belize who are like, ancient Maya, great, but what about the rest of us? What about our histories? What about, you know, the colonial histories that brought people, you know, here and resulted in the modern nation-state of Belize? So that was the impetus for the project, kind of broadly. And then specifically, I started talking to a colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Ann Tyburn, professor at Indiana University. She just told me to come on down to the Southern Belize. She and her husband, Rick uh, Wilk, have a house down there. And, uh, so we kind of just started talking and thinking about it. I knew I wanted to do historical archaeology. Um, and we started talking to the locals. What kinds of things are we finding? We knew that prehistoric archaeologists had done work in the area in that region and had mentioned a lot of different colonial sites but very little work had been done on them and so as we uh, continued to people and investigate what we found is that southern Belize uh prior to 1850 was technically considered a uh an an off-limits territory a quote-unquote no man's land if you will based on treaties between the spanish and the british spain and britain like fought over this whole area called the bay of honduras and so people were moving in and out of there, and lots of pirates were using the offshore keys to attack the Spanish fleets coming up along the coastlines. And the British pirates later became logmen who moved into much of the interior of Belize. And so you just had this mishmash of people from the 1600s onward, kind of starting to slowly but surely uh, settle in different parts of Belize. Southern Belize was partially. Uh, sparsely populated, but we still have these these settlements, right? We've got evidence of them from these previous archaeological excavations, um, and people find these trash piles of gin bottles, wine bottles, you know, your traditional 18th, 19th century, you know, tea sets and ceramic sets and all of these pieces and parts. And so the question for me became, well, who are these people? Why are they here? Because they're not supposed to be here. Are they all? Are they all pirates? Have they all like? Are they all hiding, still preying upon? <laughs> uh, we also know part of uh, a lot of the pirate ships or buccaneers. There were often indentured servants and slaves from the Caribbean. So were those folks also in this region? Uh, were they interacting with uh, local indigenous Maya at the time? So really, what was this region? Because being off limits, was did it become kind of a refuge to flee to, to, to go and log, to kind of avoid the state and the government, you know, which was farther north and kind of hide among the islands and the coast? So basically, I'm just like, yeah, I'm looking at pirates. <laughs> All of that intellectual discussion, and I'm looking at pirates. Nice. Yeah, that's it. Oh, that's so cool. What, um, what's been your favorite thing that you've seen so far in well, a trash pile or any any of that stuff? It's the, one of the very first um, places uh, some locals told us to check out was this. You know, they, they they said it was a pirate 
uh, a pirate trash dump. So we were like, sure, it's a pirate trash dump. Okay, whatever. But, you know, as you do. Um, and we go find it on this, this lovely couple's property. And it is this amazing trash dump, like, that they have kind of curated over the last 10 years, you know, like anytime something would come up on their property, they would just pile it on the already forming uh, dump that had historically been created. Huh. And it was filled with hundreds and hundreds oh, wow. of uh, gin bottle, probably gin <laughs> bottles, case bottles, which are those square, square bottles, um, wine bottles. Uh, but in all of that, right in the middle, you know, you had nails, you had metal, you had all the glass parts, you had, you know, pieces of ceramics. I had chunks of a beautiful white porcelain teapot. Oh, neat. I, I just thought that was funny because it's like, here are these <laughs> clearly largely drunk people. <laughs> it's like, here, would you like a cup of tea? Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, they managed to bring along with them their teapot, you know, and it still existed. And there was something very kind of, I don't know, poignant and funny about that. Finding that amidst all of this other just like kind of gross, hefty, you know, uh, industrial type of materials or just broken bottles and bits. Mm -hmm. Well, look, looking at that period, would that be an indicator of British occupation? Yeah. So the period I'm finding (laughs) most of it, the early colonial period in Belize goes from about 1650 to about 1850. Uh Um, Most of what we're finding that is still there uh, is running between about 1780 to 1850. So it's definitely much more of a British uh, predominant occupation, even though it was still at that time technically controlled by Spain. Yeah. So I I have a couple of questions. Um, You mentioned that the local indigenous gave you sort of the the location for those and referred to it as a pirate dump. Have you talked with the locals just to see what kind of oral histories might be around those sites or what they say about, uh, you know, what may have been passed down about uh, the relationship between the local indigenous and the historic illegal occupants? Right. Well, I, one, I just want to kind of clarify that I, while there are definitely like um, modern Maya peoples living there, um, indigenous is probably an odd term because uh, we have such a wide array of kind of ethnic group uh, that comprise Belize because it's very much both a former Spanish, former English, and also part of the Caribbean. So it's got a yeah. mix mm-hmm. of ethnicities. So we have everyone from expats to uh, Creole to Garifuna to Maya <laughs> to, you know, random. Nice. To melt yeah. pot. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I just, I just wanted to, you know, so people didn't get in their head like this is some kind of pristine indigenous paradise. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, the locals. Right. The locals, basically. <laughs> the, the folks still living down there. Um, yeah, basically, uh, my, my friend, uh, Dr. Pyburn, she, she, since she and Rick have lived down there so long, she knew people. So we started with the people we knew, right? Uh, who had lived there, and, uh, particularly one was a real estate developer. So he had personally, you know, like accidentally, uh, kind of backhoed over this particular <laughs> dump. <laughs> no. Well, oh, the, the area is just, uh, a major, the whole, all of Belize is a huge tourist development. And so the last 30 years have just seen, you know, massive amounts of change. So we started with him and then uh, we also just started having very uh, uh, basic, you know, conversations, uh, particularly with like local captains and, and fishermen, you know, people who'd been going out to the islands or who'd been in and out of the canals and mangroves because a lot of this area is just steeped in really thick mangrove swamp. Not something that's easy to survey. Let me tell you that. Uh, Yeah. Oh, I can't even begin to imagine. (laughs) No, it was it was much more enjoyable this summer. It was myself and my student, uh, my graduate student Brenda, and it was basically the two of us. And at a certain point, I was like, "Yeah, we're not going to do transects through the mangroves with two of us. We're just going to put on a snorkel and fins and go around the mangrove island, looking to see if we can see stuff." Oh, that sounds <laughs> lovely. Much more enjoyable <laughs> that way because two people with machetes, two, two, two gringas. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> the mangrove yeah. is a dangerous thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a reason why you know the the illegal settlers went there. Exactly. I mean, you, exactly. 
that's that's the thing is is that it's it's a very uh, dense uh, landscape, and you have all of these different islands. Um, plus, the whole area is partly blocked off by a very very heavy uh, reef system, which keeps larger ships um, from entering uh, close to the coast, except for two main entry points. Right, one closer to oh, nice. the city. Yeah. Uh, which is the main area that people were living. Um, and then what one much farther south, which is closer to where we're working, right? And so thinking about where those entrances are in relationship to where these settlements are, you know, might also tell us something about how and why people were using spaces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have to say a lot of what you are talking about actually reminds me of some conversations I've had with um Dan Sayers and Becca Pichotto, who are a professor and a graduate from American University and the work they've done in the Great Dismal Swamp, um, just in terms of there's a reason that these areas were, were chosen, because you don't want to be walking through a mangrove or grouping yeah. or, or a swamp. It's, it's hard work. Um, but on that note, we have actually run a little bit over this segment. So we will see you on the other side of the break. Hey, this is Kirsten again. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear so far, visit us on our blog, womeninarchaeology.com, where you can read about women in the field, current issues in archaeology, and find back episodes from over two years of women in archaeology. You can follow us on Twitter at WomenArchies, contact us via email at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com, and we always love to hear from our listeners. However, if you do like what you hear and wish to support us, you can visit our Patreon account. Links to that and organizations mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On this episode, we are joined by Chelsea Blackmore from the University of California to talk about her work um, with um, the Mayan culture and pirates, because who doesn't love pirates? (laughs) However, moving into the next segment of the show, we're going to talk about another really important project that she was working on, which is the um, Queer Archaeology blog, which has recently started, and I believe it's part of the Queer Archaeology Interest Group. Um, Chelsea, but you may have to correct me on that. Um, It's actually the the Queer Archaeology blog is and has been put together by members of the Queer Archaeology Interest Group but it is not officially connected to the Society for American Archaeology. Um, okay. So even though we're the members did put it together, we would happily take people who are not, you know, who wanted to help, who were archaeologists, who were not part of the SAA, because that's really what the blog is supposed <laughs> to be for. So do you want to... So why did you create the blog? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was um, going to ask the exact same thing. Fair enough. Go team. <laughs> it's, it's part of a longer trajectory of, of putting out issues around queerness and sexuality and gender uh, more broadly uh, into the, the, the sphere of archaeology as a profession, both in terms of kind of our intellectual discussions, but also in terms of, of um, connecting with people who define as queer. Uh, so, mm. you know, I've, I've, I've published on talking about queer theory in archaeology, as have others like Barbara Voss um, and, and many, many others um, talking about sexuality, gender, um, and queerness more broadly. But um, Don Rutecki, uh, who was the person to first really found uh, the queer archaeology interest group uh, for the SAA, the Society for American Archaeology, um, was the one who got people together who really um, kind of create an interest group not only around research, but really about mentorship and creating community for queer archaeologists. Because, you know, just like any interest group or any group of people with a shared, uh, to a certain extent, shared identity, um, there are certain issues and concerns that we have, you know, in terms of, you know, everything from professionalization to, you know, presentation to field work um, that we have to navigate as queer people and nothing was structurally there at that time. Um, mm-hmm. So this blog has been kind of something we've talked about for a long time because obviously not everybody is part of the Society for American Archaeology. Not everybody can go to the annual meetings. Um not everybody can be a QUAG member, um, you know, just because they can't be an SAA member, they can't afford it. So we wanted to create a place that was 
accessible to people from all over the world, from undergraduate students uh, to, you know, current professionals in academia and outside and hit a wide range of topics. You know, so that was that mm-hmm. was really the idea, kind of creating a, a resource that people can, you know, hopefully use that we can build to be something that become central to you know kind of as a central resource of sorts fabulous so how how uh what's the reception look like to it so i i've noticed that you guys have a handful of posts up and i went through and read all of them today and they are fantastic um no there's a lot of focus on podcasts uh, especially like queer friendly podcasts but overall how's the reception gone out in the greater world uh so far it's been pretty good as far as i can tell um, you know, I think people, it, it's at this point, it's still people are just so damn happy that there's something like this that exists. Uh, that for the most mm-hmm. part, we get positive feedback. Um, initially, there were we we randomly came across um, some tweets uh, from people who felt that there wasn't enough. Um, we weren't centering trans voices as much, or we were, and so when we read these comments, you know, it's just like one of those things you come across this comment. So we went back and we looked immediately at our page and we were like, okay, we can see that and tried to reassess um, uh, those those critiques and try to make sure that we were reaching out to a broad audience and yeah. that we were representing as many different kinds of voices. Because, you know, the, the queer umbrella is a big-ass queer umbrella. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it has such a diversity of voices and, and, and people that it's kind of hard to to equally represent everyone but we want it to feel like it's an inclusive space as much as humanly possible and that's why we want people who are interested who are archaeologists who have something to say who uh who aren't us primarily (laughs) the three of us who are you know primarily academics who are running it right now we want other people to really get involved so we can you know make this a much broader you know equitable space so is there mm-hmm. uh, like an email account or anything that if people have ideas for a blog post or they want to get involved, like how can they reach out to you to help provide those other voices? Well, there is a contact us on the webpage where they can put in a comment. Um, but the general email is QueerArc, so Q-U-E-E-R-A-R-C-H, dot socialmedia at gmail.com. Okay. So, yeah, people are free to contact us. Um uh, I, I am one of the instigators of this, but the two heroes have been Nathan and Gabriela, who are both graduate students. Um, and if it wasn't for them, I kind of feel like this site would not be up and running. They have done fully the, the uh, primary amount of work. Nathan Clambara is a grad student at Binghamton, and Gabriela uh, Mendez is at Vanderbilt University. Just to give them a shout. <laughs> Wow. Nice. Very so cool. So for those who um, are not familiar or versed with uh, the gender vocabulary that um, I know some of us may be more familiar with, what, um, how would you define, and this is something that I stumbled into mm-hmm. um, one of your papers uh, that I really liked, um, was defining for people the difference between feminism and and queer theory when it comes to looking at archaeology because i know that for some people Uh it's a very blurred space and they do overlap in a lot of ways but i think queer archaeology um from a theoretical standpoint definitely takes um has its its own stance and and likes to separate itself a bit from from feminist theory so did you want to uh, expand on that a little bit i think it can really be best understood if you read anything by um, the anthropologist Gail Rubin. Um, that queer theory, mm-hmm. there's a ton of history. I'm, I'm trying not to go off on a tangent. Yeah, I know I'm asking you to borrow um, like yeah. <laughs> yeah. a decade the of research. <laughs> <laughs> so if you look at Gail Rubin's work, one of the reasons queer or really sexuality studies came out, which now has kind of gotten taken on or by this, you know, kind of queer theory uh, methodology, I guess, if that's what you want to call it. Um, Mm. But he really advocated that we had to understand sex and sexuality separate from gender, because in feminist studies at the time she was writing this, which I believe was back in the 
70s and the 80s when a lot of her work was um, really kind of coming to the surface and it was really uh, being brought into and thought about by lesbian feminists in particular um, and queer scholars uh, was that feminism at the time was not adequate was not adequately theorizing sexuality um, and gender was encapsulating it the concept of gender was encapsulating sexuality and was defining it primarily as a heterosexual act so women's positionality in societies were seen as a process of patriarchy and an outcome of heterosexual relations so it wasn't accounting for you know things like same-sex sexual activities or relationships or any of the marginalized quote-unquote deviant sexual categories um that were become that had been and became so politically uh charged in the 70s and the 80s and 90s particularly with the onslaught of aids crisis did that work (laughs) (laughs) a little bit yeah yeah no that definitely i think just gives a a quick intro about this shit forever (laughs) so i just wanted to be like Well, kind of yes. stemming off of that as well, if you were trying, like, with the blog, with your research, um, and all of that culminating into, like, into a nutshell, what are you hoping your students, when you're teaching them, or with outreach through the blog or Twitter, like, what is, what is the main thing you really want to get across to people with your work? Um, that archaeology can be political and transformative, uh, that archaeology and the people in it can be diverse, mm-hmm. but that we also have to be very critical and very conscious about what we're doing, how we're doing it, and the various ways in which our practice and our community um, can emulate both the good and the bad of, in society. Um, wow, that sounded really Pollyanna, but yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I really do love archaeology, but you know, it is it, it has many problems that you know you all have dealt with and talked about which many people long before any of us have talked about um and i think archaeology can be used particularly in this day and age to to really have better and more interesting public conversations in the first place that we need to have them is amongst ourselves as professionals and make sure that there are safe spaces for the people who want to do this kind mm-hmm. of work mm-hmm. and for me if i contribute nothing else in this life is i want my students to know that I and the people I bring into as part of my archaeological community are going to work their butts off to make sure there's a safe seat. Yeah. That's awesome. Greatly appreciated by all of us who are up and coming. <laughs> well, we appreciate you guys. You all have the stamina to put this stuff together. That's why I love my grad students who are doing the blog because I'm like, yeah, yeah, you put stuff up. It looks great. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> um, so, it sounds funny. I'll see. <laughs> yes. Uh, since, you know, you've got the blog going and you guys talk about podcasts a lot on the blog, uh, when are we to be expecting the Queer Archaeology podcast? Ah, very, very interesting. Yeah, no, that, that is, that is outside of my tenure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Eddie, do you want to take that on on top of everything? <laughs> I have to find a good sponsor. Uh, then, um, We'd be happy to have people meet. Um, one of our, um, uh, one of the, 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 one of the graduate students who's uh, working on the blog, Gabriella, and her uh, roommate Scotty Norman uh, have a podcast. Uh, I believe it's called TVB, mm-hmm. um, which we've linked on the site, and they do talk a lot—not necessarily about queer archaeology, but they do talk a lot about different queer issues. And obviously, since they're both archaeology graduate students, you know. Hide it. Right. <laughs> it's inescapable. It's hard yeah. to avoid. So I know <laughs> on one of their podcasts, they have already talked about things like um, gender presentation, right? You know, uh, particularly at conferences and mm-hmm. jobs. And, you know, particularly when you define as queer, we often uh, present in different ways with, under that spectrum. And sometimes those aren't always considerable, considered quote unquote suitable if you will, um, huh. in certain situations. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so how do you define that? How do you address it? How do you deal with it? But I'm not going to do it. Well, at least try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm happy never, but no. There you go. <laughs> and I'm happy to go on any podcast and talk talk anybody's ears off about queerness. And you love talking about it or you love being, being gay? gay? I love it. Um, <laughs> 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 all the above. <laughs> 
Like you're putting my money where my mouth is. Yeah, so like, like both monkeys. Monkeys. There we go. And talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so for the blog, I know that you did mention the special queer edition of the archaeological record from the essays. Uh, that came out a little while ago, wasn't it? It was in 2006, so just a few years ago. Um, okay. And have you seen other outreach aside from the blog that you have, um, occasional podcasts uh, that you would recommend for, say, techs or other uh, archaeological community members that aren't part of the essays? Um, and I, I'm asking because you mentioned that some those are some of the audience that you want to try and reach. I don't know if the, the grad students you have do like a Facebook or Twitter or anything along those lines. Yeah, we do have a, um, uh, it'll be, I think it's queer archaeology uh, uh, on Twitter and on Facebook as well. Um, that uh, is where we started with cool. our social media outreach. Um, and uh, the blog just kind of became a much more extensive kind of version of that. So all of nice. these things are linked. Um, for the reference, the archaeological record piece you brought up is called Towards an Inclusive Queer Archaeology, and it came out in January okay. 2016. Um, why I wanted to mention that is because that deals specifically with a lot of the issues we were just talking about, about what it means to be queer in the field, what it means to be uh, a good ally, you know, any number of different things, you know, that are kind of concerns and problems and why we need to give it about sexuality and gender about all of these things race ethnicity yeah. class what have you and why these these kinds of issues are important important conversations to have for archaeology yeah. um so your your question was like what other groups do this kind of yeah like work, it or there's this um just as far as the, a network that if people haven't really seen this yet uh just how to to get in touch. And I'm, I mean, we'll put the, the Twitter and you said the Facebook page uh, link out. Yeah, we have a Twitter Facebook page, right? And the webpage. Um, they're also welcome to, to get a hold of many of us, um, you know, who contribute mm -hmm. to these types of things. But I, I see aspects of this in a lot of the different organizations, like the Society for Historic Archaeology has the, what is it, GMAC, Gender Minority Affairs okay. Committee, I believe. Um, you know, so what I'm seeing, you know, and then the American Anthropological Association um, has the Association for Queer Anthropology. So there's, at least professionally, I think there's a lot of different resources yeah. that we have. The main thing was kind of trying to create a space for people more broadly specific yeah. to archaeology. Cool. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been hearing a lot about this in the, in the work, so I'm glad to, to see it out. So I think that we are both running out of time, um, as well as ending on the fact that there are resources available for people who are is probably a good place to end, but if anyone has any final thoughts, say them now or uh, hold on to them. <laughs> <Right. laughs> Bye. I just want to say excellent work. I think the, the blog is amazing. It was wonderful hearing about your work and I hope you come on the podcast. Great. Again. Thank you. I enjoyed my time. I appreciate it so much. And thank you all for what you do. Yeah, of course. Oh, thank, thank you. you for what you do. And if anyone wants to reach out to us about uh, this episode you can always find us on twitter at women archies or email us at women in archaeology at gmail.com thanks for listening bye, bye. bye.